Thursday, January 25th, 2018. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Phil Runyon, and tonight we will revisit and review the 1950 science fiction novel Wine of the Dreamers by John D. MacDonald, 1918-1986. And this was MacDonald's first science fiction novel. MacDonald went on to become one of America's best detective story writers. Wine of the Dreamers is set 25 years in the future, 1975, actually, and because uh, uh, it was probably, it was written and published in 1950. Now the story interweaves two sets of characters on two different planets. The director of an early United States space program, Bard Lane and his staff psychiatrist, Sharon Henley, on Earth, and Raoul Kinzen and his sister, Lisa, on the distant planet of the Dreamers. Now, the Dreamers are the decadent descendants of the original human race. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, they colonized Earth and two other planets in, in other solar systems. They maintained contact with their colony worlds, including Earth, by the use of long-range telepathic dream machines. They call themselves the Watchers. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they have a prime directive to keep the colony worlds from developing space travel. And the dreamers do this by telepathic, demonic possession, sabotaging space programs, such as the one Bard, uh, Bard Lane and Sharon are managing in, the, in New Mexico. But the dreamers themselves have degenerated to the point where they no longer believe that the people on these other worlds whom they possess have any real reality. They've convinced themselves that uh, these beings on, on the colony planets are creations of their dream machines for their entertainment, very much like our video games today. So the dreamers can create mayhem and chaos for their amusement. However, Raoul Kinson is a throwback to an earlier age. He suspects the truth. And he wants to help Bard and Sharon uh, on the Earth with their space program. The end result of this alliance of the minds between the worlds makes for a fascinating sequence of what-ifs. So, if you want to find out who might be watching and listening between your ears, then tune in and we'll go back to a future that never was, but might be coming. Now, the 1950 science fiction novel, One of the Dreamers, actually, uh, if you look it up, you'll find that it's credited for 1951 because that's when the book publication came out. But uh, in science fiction, they always publish in magazines first. And so uh, the first publication was 19, May 1950 in Startling Stories um, by John D. MacDonald. And it was one of his first science fiction novels. And as I said, it first appeared in Startling Stories in their May 1950 issue. And it had a very 
sexy Earl Bergie cover. Now, Earl Bergie, uh, you old-timers will probably remember Earl Bergie was was the, he did the pinup girls on the covers of the old science fiction magazines that we teenagers just couldn't couldn't get enough of. And I think maybe it was maybe it was the Earl Bergie cover on, on Wine of the Dreamers that, that that got me to buy it. I was fifteen years old when I bought this uh this version of Wine of the Dreamers. And uh, it was one of the first contemporary science fiction novels that I that I read actually. Um Previously, I'd been reading the John Carter stories, which were somewhat antiquated by 1950. Now, John D. MacDonald went on to become one of America's best detective story writers, and I later followed his Travis McGee hard-boiled detective adventures, and I even studied his style for my own later paperback thrillers. Now, one of the dreamers, back to the back to our subject, one of the dreamers was set. 25 years in the future, 1975. Uh, Now, the story interweaves two sets of characters on two different plots. The director and manager of an early United States space program, Bard Lane, Dr. Bard Lane, Ph.D., and his staff psychiatrist, Sharon Inley, on planet Earth, and Raoul Kinson and his sister, Lisa, on the distant planet of the Dreamers. Now, the dreamers are the decadent descendants of the original progenitors of the human race. Now, hundreds of thousands of years ago, they colonized Earth and two other planets in other solar systems. Now, no longer using spaceships, they still maintain contact with the original colony worlds, including the Earth, by the use of long-range telepathic dream machines. And they call themselves the Watchers. And they have a prime directive to keep the colony worlds from developing space travel. Now, the dreamers do this uh, and do their watching by telepathic uh, entrance to our minds, and even what 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 is called demonic possession, they're responsible, of course, for demonic possession, uh, and uh, and 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 they sabotage space programs such as the one uh, Bard Lane and Sharon are managing in in New Mexico. Now, true to the era of his writing, in the 1950s. McDonald bases his space program on Operation Paperclip and their series of, uh, of A-series World War II German rockets. These were developed by Werner von Braun at White Sands, New Mexico, and are all these, all these V-2 rockets, they had actually A-4 rockets, but they call them V-2s, vengeance weapons, uh, we captured a, a lot of them, including von Braun and, 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 and his German technicians and engineers. Now, although none of the project's personnel in, in, the, in this story, in, in McDonald's story, appear, appear to be German. Um, now, on the planet of the Dreamers, the original humans, as I said, have degenerated to the point where they no longer believe that the people on the other worlds whose minds they invade and possess have any real reality. 
They think they are creations of the dream machines for their entertainment. Very much like our video games, you know, where you can commit a crime and you you can kill people, you can you can even rape and murder and do whatever you want. In uh, and so the dreamers can create mayhem and chaos for their vicarious thrills. They have become like Roman arena fans, witnessing and enjoying human suffering as amusement. However, Rao Kinzen and his sister Lisa are throwbacks to an earlier age. Rao finds the old books, he teaches himself to read, and he learns the truth of the dreamer's history. He tries to enlighten his sister, but she falls under the influence of one of the elder dreamers, and unfortunately she agrees to spy on her heretical brother Rao. Uh, sort of the dreamer. The dreamers are 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 a tyranny, very much like the communists. Now, in New Mexico, in New Mexico testing area, one of the technicians is possessed by a dreamer, and he goes on a rampage, destroying critical guidance equipment, and that, that he himself had helped to design and fabricate. Now, Sharon Endley finds this case of temporary insanity an enigma. The tech describes how someone else moved into his brain and took over his mind and body. Now, back on the planet of the dreamers, this particular dreamer who did the damage is out of his dream case and eating in the automatic cafeteria of the huge building that houses the last 900 survivors of the original human race. Now, Kinson sits at the man's table and overhears the dreamer bragging about the destruction of the guidance equipment on distant planet Earth, which is world number two of the three worlds available to the dreamers. Now, from the man's conversation, Kinson picks up enough clues to be able to locate the testing area in New Mexico when he makes his next telepathic journey to Earth. Now, Kinson has located... Uh, on his on the dreamer's planet, Kinzen has located one of the ancient spaceships that his race had originally used in the days before the dreaming technology was developed. He thinks perhaps the Earthlings can help him get it in working order. Now he decides to help them defend against the dreamers. And in a dreaming session, he projects to New Mexico and he invades Bard Lane's mind. He wakes Lane in the middle of the night and leaves a spoken message on his dictaphone. In Lane's voice, of course, but it's but it's uh, Kinson speaking. Lane plays it back for sure on the next day, and they begin to think that he's going wacko. And then Kinson persists, and Lane has to be put under guard. Kinson then projects into Sharon's mind and finally convinces both of them that he's a real person and wants to help them. But his sister, Lisa, ports him. To the elder. And then, at his direction, she dream journeys to Earth and invades one of the ground crew, sabotaging a test firing of their rocket, which causes a premature liftoff and a crash and the crash casualties and the crash and the casualties destroy the project. The government withdraws funding. Now meanwhile, 
Bard has been helping Raoul Kinson master the controls of his ancient spaceship through telepathic consultation. Lisa has had a change of heart. She telepathically visits Bard Lane and now believes in the reality of Earthlings. This is the beginning of a telepathic romance. She wants to go with her brother on a physical voyage to Earth. Raoul is developing a similar affection for Sharon Inway. This is a long-distance bioelectric sex. Hmm, let me run my synapses through your brain, my darling. And we are reminded of the romance between the ship's engineer and the lady alien in Galaxy Quest. But, of course, fortunately, Lisa does not have tentacles. However, on the planet of the Dreamers, Raoul and Lisa are arrested and are about to be thrown down the death tube. Oh, boy, the death tube. But they, are, they overpower the wimpy dreamer guards, and they escape. And he and Lisa take off in their spaceship headed earthward. At this point, Bard Lane and Sharon Inley go public with their story of interplanetary mind control. Now, the public loves it. And Bard and, and Sharon even get offers to make the story into a syndicated television show. And the government and the scientific community declare it a hoax. But secretly, they suspect it may be true. Now, to preserve the status quo, the powers that be have Bard Lane and Sharon arrested and taken to a, to a psycho ward where they are threatened with massive shock treatments and told that they will be rehabilitated as productive citizens after their brains have been liberated from their delusions. Meanwhile, Army radar picks up a UFO approaching the Earth. The brainwashing of Bard and Sharon is put on hold. Fortunately, Raoul and Lisa land in time to rescue Bard and, Sh- and, and Sharon from the clutches of the establishment, and a new era of peace and harmony dawns for humankind, along with a double wedding of the space travelers and their earthly telepathic counterparts. Now, today we might wonder how quickly the dreamers would be granted citizenship and if chain migration to their planet would be honored. In the epilogue of the novel, two hard-boiled city reporters lament on the lack of sensational news stories, Well, there are no ash murders, no terrible crimes, no crazy suicides, no senseless violence. Things are dull all over, they complain. Now, of course, this novel is very dated, and its scientific technological projections, Bard and Sharon's American spacecraft, the BD-1, is described as an improved A-6 rocket. Now, recall that the 1944 German V-2 was actually an A-4 in technical terminology. It was called the V for vengeance by the Nazi propaganda machine. Now, we captured a number of A-4s and their German engineers and techs and transported the whole lot to to the White Sands test site in New Mexico back in 1945. Now, when John McDonald wrote Dreamers, White Sands was still the center of America's budding space program. At that time, rocket propulsion was thought to be the future of space travel, and it was. Werner von Braun was so persuasive and successful 
with his A-series rockets that we and the Russians continue to develop them to the present day, although they are essentially 1930s and 40s technology in both science and science fiction. McDonald mixes in a bit of exotic Einstein and Lawrence Fitzgerald physics with his rocketry to make the trips between the planet of the dreamers located near Alpha Centauri and Earth a bit easier time-wise. But he stretches credibility by imagining that the rockets of the original dreamers also had a navigation and time-bending capability. Now, writers still make mistakes like this. You can recall the hacking into the alien mothership's computer in Independence Day. But if the dreamers were the original human race, perhaps they had an Einstein and a Lawrence Fitzgerald of their own. Now, McDonald also drew on the Book of Enoch in calling the dreamers the watchers and finally bringing them down to Earth to mate with the daughters of men. And we may recall that Arthur C. Clarke used a similar plot a few years later in his Childhood's End in 1953, which we also have reviewed. Perhaps the most important aspect of Wine of the Dreamers for today's readers, on the few of us who still read, is its prophetic projection of humans into the new species that Dan Brown calls Homo Technicus, and the other projections of virtual reality the mind swarm and implant facilitated telepathy that is being predicted. McDonald's dreamers were using external machines which they, with which they made contact by down on a transmitter plate in their mouths. Now, this is essentially an implant wired to its central processing unit outside the body. Our wireless electronics have made the dreamers' technology obsolete but we are still headed in the same direction. And even more disturbing speculation, are we already creating the havoc that McDonald's sadistic dreamers engaged in mainly for their entertainment? We already have video games that promote identification with criminals and act out criminal behavior. Our films and television productions glorify sex and violence. They are so realistic that they desensitize their viewers to tragedy and mayhem. Is it possible that some dark force or even a rogue government agency is prowling social, social media on the Internet searching for potential mass shooters and even suicide bombers? What comes to mind is a perversion of the psychological criminal profiling process. A law enforcement profiler attempts to establish a psychological profile for a wanted criminal, usually a murderer. But what if the process is reversed and the profile and the profiler establishes a psychological criteria, a profile to identify potential murderers who can then be conditioned like Manchurian candidates by telepathic mind control? As a hypothetical example, Let's consider Stephen Paddock, a Las Vegas shooter. His father was a notorious bank robber, so Stephen had a genetic affinity. He was a former IRS agent, so he had an antisocial career background 
and he was a compulsive high-stakes gambler, which gave him a propensity for high-risk action. He was also down on his luck, which made him depressed and desperate. And he was a collector of weapons, which obviously filled some need for personal power. His guns could, because he was down on his luck, depressed and, and desperate, become a means of expressing that power. Now, if I were one of Colonel McDonald's dreamers, oh, I forgot to mention, John D. McDonald was a colonel, excuse me, a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Special Forces, OSS, in World War II. Now, if I was one of Colonel McDonald's dreamers, I would have a lot of fun controlling Stephen Paddock and seeing how many how many people I could have him slaughter in the Las Vegas concert. And, of course, I would then have him kill himself because he wouldn't want him talking afterwards about being possessed by an entity using mental telepathy to control his mind. Now, this is a far-fetched hypothetical scenario, but we need to realize that even if we aren't at this point in 2018, according to the trends we are seeing and the predictions our futurists are making, we will be in, we will be at that point in a few more years. Whether the dreamers contact us through implants or simply use our bioelectric brains as receivers, they will be in our heads in a few more years. Perhaps that old revolutionary slogan, liberty, equality, and fraternity, should be replaced with freedom, dignity, and privacy. Now, Includes the formal presentation, but let's talk about John D. McDonald a little bit here. This man, John McDonald, and of course, naturally, I have a warm spot in my in my heart for him because he's a former OSS officer, and and many of my instructors in special warfare school were old, were old OSS people, so I, you know, that that was what that was that was. Army Special Forces during World War II. And, uh, and McDonald was over in, in, in the uh, China-Burma-India theater. And those of you who have seen the Frank Sinatra movie, Never So Few, that was that, uh, uh, that, was that, that operation. And most of, what, uh, most of what we did at Fort Bragg was really based primarily on what they were doing in, in, uh, in the, the China-Burma-India theater. Uh, the, our airdrops and and and, uh, all that, and a lot of our training was based on on experiences that McDonald and and those and, and his people had. Uh, so I, there's a sort of a you know I, I sort of feel a kindred for McDonald and I and I and I was really really fascinated with his writing and and uh, other writers, especially Dean Kuntz and Stephen King. And Dan Brown, they all owe a lot to McDonald. McDonald was was considered to be the best, the best American suspense writer of, of, of detective stories. He was considered to be the best. Um, and Dean Kuntz, who wrote the book How to Sell, uh, How to Write Best Selling Fiction, that that was really the textbook that Dan Brown used to create such thrillers as Da Vinci Code and and um, Inferno and the, and the rest. That formula, that Dean Kuntz formula that Dan Brown used, uh, 
uh, Dean Kuntz learned it from McDonald. And back, Dean Kuntz said that McDonald was his favorite writer, that he had read every one of McDonald's books at least five times. And, of course, Dean Kuntz is, is you know, he, he's he's the guru when it comes to writing thrillers. And, uh, and so McDonald, uh, McDonald's Travis McGee series is, is if you like, if you like, uh, hard-boiled detective adventure uh, uh, stories, suspense stories. Uh, his Travis McGee stories can't uh, really can't be topped. They're great. Um, and um, as far as science fiction is concerned, they, uh, he also wrote a science fiction comedy, uh, "The Girl with Gold Watch and Everything," which was made into a film. Uh, TV movie with Pam Dauber, uh, and uh, and also lifted by Rod Serling for an episode of The Twilight Zone. The Girl, the Gold Watch, and Everything is a delightful idea for a story. Uh, you've probably all seen either Rod Serling's version of it, or maybe you've even maybe you've even seen the the uh, you know the, the TV movie if you haven't read the book. But what it is is that it's a watch. It looks like a regular pocket stopwatch but when you press the button on this on this watch it freezes time in other words if you're in the middle of a, of a room full of people and they're all walking around and they're they're all talking or walking around and doing things and you and you take the watch out and you press the button everybody is frozen everything stops except you and of course, naturally, if you do this in a bank, especially when the vaults open, you know you could you could get away with just about anything you want. Anyway, uh, you can imagine the, uh, what kind of fun you can have with this with this story, and uh, and it it, it it's really is it, it, it's hilarious. And uh, and there's that one, and the other one that he wrote was called Ballroom of the Skies. Now, um, McDonald realized something that Kuntz, it took Kuntz a long time to realize it, probably under McDonald's influence that he did realize it, that science fiction, writing science fiction is very, is a lot of fun, and, and it's a lot of fun, and it's really, uh, it stretches your imagination, and it gives you a feeling of, of even a kind of feeling of mystical accomplishment and all that. But it doesn't pay anything, and and uh, and so McDonald very quickly realized that, that that he could make more money writing detective stories, and and than than he could doing science fiction. And Dean Kuntz, it took Dean Kuntz years and years and years to to learn that. And of course, he learned it from McDonald, and and uh, and and Dean Kuntz, uh, you know, said when he when he. He wrote the book How to Write Best Selling Fiction because his buddies that were still writing science fiction and starving, uh, you know, he wrote it for them. He said, Hey you guys, stop stop writing this stuff. I know it's fun to write, but but you but, but you gotta feed your families. So he wrote How to Write Best Selling Fiction primarily for his friends in the science fiction community to teach them how to write money, to, how to write stories to make money for themselves. And uh Unfortunately, we have Dean Kuntz's uh, Dean How to Write Best-Selling Fiction, which is still the best, the best book on, on how to do it. Now, the, uh, 
Hollywood screenwriters today would not agree with that. They don't like they don't like they don't like the linear plot, you know, the linear plot, and and they don't like uh, so they don't like Dean Kuntz and they don't like Sid Field. They don't like anybody that really knows that really can teach you how to write. Uh, and uh, I don't mind if you I don't mind if you quote me on that, but uh, frankly, if 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 this if this movie, if this film, three billboards, if this thing wins an Oscar, I, I uh, you know, for especially for for writing, if it, and if, 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 I'm really I'm really very disappointed in in uh, in, in Hollywood these days. But anyway, um, get back to our subject. Um, McDonald McDonald's publication of Line of the Dreamers went in this sequence. Publication, of course, is magazine. Uh, that was Startling Stories in May 1950. Then, then in 1951, it was published in paperback, Line of the Dreamers. Uh, and then it was published again a few years later as Planet of the Dreamers. And finally, in 1980... Um, all three of his science fiction novels were collected in a in a in an omnibus called Time and Tomorrow, and uh, that's Wine of the Dreamers, uh, Ballroom of the Skies, and The Girl of the Gold Watch, and everything. And that, of course, is the one that you should probably get if you want to. And a lot of copies are available if you if you want to really uh, get into into have McDonald's science fiction. Um, Actually, uh, McDonald's, you know, was a master of of style, and he was where I first discovered multiple viewpoint, the multiple viewpoint style of writing fiction, which is the most the most effective style for writing novels. And and the the way a multiple viewpoint works and the way McDonald worked it, um, at least the way he worked it when he when he got started, and I'm not saying he invented it, but he later he later changed to the modern way of doing it. And when he started writing writing fiction, you had chapter by chapter. Each chapter is from the viewpoint of one of the characters of the story. And what you usually do, and what McDonald did, was you have you have you start with the protagonist. In his case, Travis McGee, you know, is his detective. Uh, you start with the first chapter with the protagonist, so everybody knows that uh, you know that they say, hey, this is the book's about uh, about Travis, and he's uh, and 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 he's the guy I'm following. He's the guy I'm going to identify with. And then the next chapter might be about Travis's girlfriend, and she might be might be from her point of view. This was like the old, you know, the old POV in the script. This is from her point of view. And then the next chapter might be uh, from the POV, the from the point of view of the murderer, or if somebody gets murdered, and and the, the villain. And and you go back and forth, and you tell the story. Uh, the way you weave the story together, you tell it from the viewpoints of the principal characters involved. This is multiple viewpoint fiction, and it's very, very effective. 
and uh, I picked it up from McDonald, and and uh, and uh, but eventually, eventually it got virtually every, all fiction writers started using it, and and it devolved to the point where they no longer separated multiple viewpoint by chapters. Um, they 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 began to just break in with multiple viewpoint right in the right by, by paragraphs, and 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 almost almost you know how you in fiction you uh, you separate uh, dialogue by 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 paragraphing. Uh, and in fact, you can you can uh, if if you if you can handle the tempo, some some writers can, but if you handle the tempo, you can you can have uh, a whole stack. Of dialogue paragraphs, sometimes just one-liners, and and they can, without even without even putting the tag, without even saying Joe said this, uh, or uh, Bill replied. You don't even need to use the names if you stack it right, and and if you get it, it's it's hard to do because uh, a lot of times if you don't know how to do it, uh, the the reader can get completely lost. He won't know who's saying what, so you have to be careful with it, but. Um, McDonald was a master, but but he started it from by by chapter. He he divided the view he divided the viewpoints by chapter to chapter, and I and I used that, and I and and a lot of writers used that. But then eventually, people started dividing just by paragraphs. You know, one paragraph from one point of view, and the next paragraph from the, from the other guy's point of view, and. This so finally McDonald, in my opinion, now this is my opinion. Um, finally, he wrote a bad novel. It's called Condominium. They even made it into a movie, uh, and I think it's a bad novel because he 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 succumbs to this to this uh, broken up uh, multiple viewpoint style where where he, you can have. Five or six different viewpoints in in a single chapter, and and I found it maybe it's just because I don't like it that I thought the novel was so lousy. Maybe maybe that's the reason. But I but I, I really when I you know I I couldn't get through it. I thought God this this can't be McDonald you know, uh, and uh, but that you know that's that's just just my opinion. I'm sure that other people think that novel is great. But uh, get back to one of the dreamers. It got very good reviews, and it's still getting good reviews. And in fact, uh, people like it so much that you'll even find a, uh, an animated uh, a thing on YouTube with a with a, a little animated girl in the middle of a what looks like a grid. Uh, she stands with a little animated girl reading for one of the dreamers. Um, some of the some of the prose is really beautiful, and, and because he's dealing with uh, with people getting inside other people's heads, and this is not easy to write. When you start to uh, you know you if you just consider it as a challenge, uh, if you're going to write the kind of story about someone who's able to project their mind into somebody else's mind, this is not easy to do. And, and it's not easy to do in reality, and it's not easy to write about. But McDonald does a does a beautiful job of it, and and uh, Wine of the Dreamers is certainly um, 
if you if you are interested in that kind of of experience or or what it would be like, or the implications of it, it it's certainly worthwhile to read this uh, and uh, to uh, you know to get that experience to kind of get the idea of what it would be like to to uh, to prowl around in other people inside other people's heads. Um, it's, it's you know as I say it's kind of creepy and it's it's uh, and it's and it's kind of scary but but uh, when you think about it uh, but uh, the, 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 what I mentioned before is that our futurists our our, our people who are predicting the future this this uh, Homo sapien Homo Homo technicus thing that Dan Brown is talking about in Origin uh, people that are predicting that. They're um, uh, they're saying that we're going to have we're going to have telepathy uh, where where we could all in fact I saw an, uh, something on National Geographic one of these uh, future projection documentaries showing a bunch of people sitting around a dinner table oh just thinking at each other and they're just they they they're not even they're not even speaking they're just thinking at each other and uh, are we coming toward that? Well, the brain is when you you know the brain is a, a, a bioelectric uh, uh, organic machine computer, if you will, and 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 it could certainly be a receiver. Uh, it could certainly be a receiver and a transmitter. It could be both, and it may be in some cases, in some ways, it is both, but also. Uh, they're talking about almost uh, homo, homo technicus. It's also going to be something of a cyborg, have a lot of implants, and, and we're already talking about uh, about chips, about uh, you know chips that will enable us to to, uh, uh, to be telepathic, and and uh, and in, we're we're uh, we're on the verge of of well, I suppose you could call it a brave new world. Uh, there are things that about it that that are exciting, but there are also things about it that are terrifying. And then we're going to have to decide, as I said, uh, how much how much do we really value our privacy and our individuality, and and are we are we going to give up our creativity to uh, to be in a to be in a in a, in a swarm in, in a swarm of minds working on one project. I'm just wondering about about a, a swarm of minds writing a story, and and on a, um, and as a writer, I, I I feel like I don't want to I don't want to join a swarm of minds to write a story. I want to write my own story. I I. I, I, I feel that the, the, the part of the writer's uh, part of the writer's pleasure. That's a selfish pleasure, I know. But part of the writer's pleasure is is playing God and and creating creating characters and having them come alive while you're writing the story. Because this is this is one of the writer's great pleasures, and especially if you're writing a novel. When you're writing a novel. Uh, and a lot of writers will tell you this, and I've experienced it myself. 
the characters at a certain point in a novel, the characters take on a life of their own. And even though you may have outlined, in your outline, you may have them doing something, when you get to that point in writing the actual story, they won't do it. They really won't. And that's because you've brought them to life. And and the, your own characters are just, uh, I'll tell you, I'm not going to do that. And and that that that's an experience when you when you when you you actually get into arguments with the characters you've created. And and uh this is I don't think I want to share that with a swarm of other writers. Uh, you know, I, I know it and it isn't that, that I wouldn't cooperate with another writer in, in some instances. A lot of times and in fact I have. Uh but but when when it comes to when it comes to fiction, no, I I I don't think so. I think I, I think I want to create my own characters. But I have had, and I will tell you this, as a magician and a writer, I have had the experience of creating characters and later meeting them in real life. In real life, meeting characters you have created. And this is really, when you when you experience this, you uh, you you have experienced uh, uh, something that, uh, uh, that 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 makes a makes a believer out of you. Anyway, uh, I think I've reminisced enough. Uh, I strongly recommend if if you're interested in this subject at all, I strongly recommend that you uh, get yourself a copy of One of the Dreamers, either uh, one of the you know, one of the old paperbacks, or or perhaps the omnibus uh, with with the other with the other two uh, stories in it, and enjoy the genius of Lieutenant Colonel John Dan McDonald. And uh, that's all we have for tonight. Now, next week, next week, we're going to do, or we're going to we're going to re redo. A memorial, Golden Dawn Requiem, for our for our lately departed uh, founder of the Los Angeles Temple of the Golden Dawn, uh, Chris Benonstre, uh who was uh, Patricia Beeman, who passed away uh, several months ago, and we're going to have, we're going to re uh, reenact the, the the memorial service that we did for her, which is primarily out of the Golden Dawn. And so uh, that's February 1st, so be sure and tune in, especially those of you who have an interest in the Golden Dawn. Let's tune in, and I'll be assisted by the Master Philos and and, uh, and, uh, and by uh, uh, Sir Maud Aston. And we'll, and we'll have a, 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 beautiful, a beautiful, we'll recap a beautiful service and uh, in Patricia's honor. And so we'll see you next week. And meanwhile, good magic. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 